and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a screen girl. We love listener feedback, so last month when we got a pitch for a back-to-school episode, we changed up our episode lineup in these final nine weeks, and we sat down with two great guys. Dan and Kyle both started their careers as teachers, and now they're working to better the lives of PA children through an innovative, nationally-known nonprofit. The name of this Philadelphia-based organization sums up the mission, Children First PA. Like all our listeners, they know that for better or worse, policymaking and politics go hand-in-hand. That's why they've launched conversations with candidates across diverse counties where there are hot state house and state senate races. So I'm excited to learn more about their work and get a sneak preview of these upcoming events. Okay, Dan O'Brien and Kyle McMillan, welcome to my kitchen table. Thanks for having us, Ari. Yeah, thank you, Ari. It's well, thanks here. for the work you guys are doing, and I appreciate it, Dan. You guys are in the trenches twofold. One, it's uh, the final few weeks of this historic campaign, but it's also back to school season. And we're going to talk, as we often do on this show, about politics, but you can't talk about that. You can't talk about policymaking, which is really your bread and butter without politics. So. Maybe, Kyle, why don't you kick us off, tell us a little about your background, uh, and then Dan would certainly love to hear how you made the transition from teaching into this important work and a little about the organization. Yeah, so I got my start also in education. Um, I'm originally from Michigan, so that was when a lot of the in in the classroom time happened for me. During that time, I also got involved in politics. I've been involved in both um, electoral campaigns, issue-based campaigns, and that combination of my education background and also the background in issue-based organizing and uh, elections really led to this perfect fit for this role, um, which I kind of operate within our early childhood work. And I know Dan is going to speak about our larger breadth of work, but within our early childhood work, we have a 501c4, Children First Action Fund, and I'm able to um, do a lot more of the explicitly political work around the election season, which we're going to talk about here and focus around kids' issues, specifically when it comes to early childhood, childcare, pre-K, home visiting, the whole gamut. And Dan can speak a little bit more about our kind of more umbrella organization, Children First. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. So, so a little bit of background about myself. I was, as you mentioned, already a, a teacher uh, taught middle school and, and ended up teaching uh, for the last couple of years of my teaching career, uh, high school in North Philadelphia. And as I saw, uh, my students who are great kids just weren't getting the resources they needed within their elementary schools leading up to me in high school and really just felt compelled to try to get them them, and then also my fellow teachers kind of into the room when it comes to you know, decision-making, policymaking, 
for schools because they've been kept out of the conversation for so long. I really truly find it was necessary for me to, to hop onto the political side and eventually the advocacy side of Children First to fight for them. And so Children First, overall, we are an advocacy organization. We fight for kids. It's right in the name. Uh, we used to be called Public Citizens for Children and Youth and changed our uh, name to a much easier thing to say instead of that mouthful that was before. But we've been around for about 40 years and we advocate at the, mostly the state level for school funding, access to early childhood education, uh, kids' health issues, uh, a lot of K through 12 work, and really any issues that kind of affect children, particularly in the Southeast, but then across the state with some of our coalition members uh, has been really our focus over the past four decades. Well, thank you both. There's certainly been a national conversation about uh, the teacher shortage, and there's been just a conversation, which I think we're going to be talking about for an entire generation, about what it means to be in front of a classroom over the last two uh, uh, school years. I, I'd be curious, uh, just, just taking a step back, I mean, why did both of you decide to uh, get in front of a classroom? I mean, I, my hat goes off to anyone who makes the uh, decision to plunge into uh, the teaching as a profession. And then for that matter, if I can ask, why did you decide to, to bow out and uh, work with children in this capacity? Yeah. So, I mean, to get in front of a classroom just felt like I, I needed to, as somebody who's always been kind of, you know, my, my father was always, I feel like a public servant in this sense. He was a a union leader. And I was always taught that you need to put back into your community. And I felt compelled to be a teacher because I felt like that was the most direct work that I could have with my community that would impact it long term. And I never felt when I was a teacher that I was doing work that wasn't necessary. Yeah, the problem, we, it was interesting, you, said, you mentioned the teacher shortage. When I, when I graduated from grad school, there were too many teachers and it was tough to, <laughs> tough to find a job. And it was interesting that just within you know, about a 12-year period, how quickly uh, the profession has been not valued enough to a point where teachers are leaving at record pace. And so, I, I, as I mentioned kind of a few years ago, I chose to hop onto this side because I really felt like teachers and, and the kids who I was teaching did not have a say in what was happening in their classroom. And they really just weren't in the room. And they're still not in the room. And so, I felt compelled to kind of hop over to this side to, to really fight for uh, what I, I really still truly believe has been a failure for our kids for decades in uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and, and for myself, I always tell people the path was kind of laid for me. My my grandmother taught for 42 years uh, in middle school. Uh, my Both my parents, uh, they just recently retired being teachers as well. So, of course, I entered college thinking I would do anything, but, and, you know, lo and behold, I end up being in the classroom myself. And I think it comes down to similar things that Dan said about, you know, a lot of what's driven me, um, driven my family, you know, to get into education just for themselves, but then kind of went to me as well as just that uh, sense of giving back and making sure that you leave something better than what you found it, right? And I think that goes for, can go for an individual classroom and it can go for a broader community. And I think that's what always kind of drove me to advocacy and that, you know, background in electoral politics and issue-based advocacy. So, I always say that, you know, my way of finding this role of doing more of the advocacy side was that was always there. And then I was just following in my family's footsteps in the education part, which was also a very fulfilling. And, you know, sometimes I, I wish I was back there, but I know that this is also where the fight is to make sure that the stuff that Dan was experiencing, the stuff that I was experiencing, and most of all, what the kids are experiencing gets um, righted by the powers of be, which hasn't been done for too, too long. 
Well, Kyle, when you reached out, and I appreciate the both of you being longtime listeners of the show, you reached out and pitched our topic. I said this is a great discussion as we get uh, you know, students across the Commonwealth, even from preschool on up, go back to school. You talked about 2,000 voters statewide that are focused on these issues. So, And you described it as a movement that, that's begun in recent months. So maybe if you could speak a little to uh, the genesis of this, this quote-unquote movement. Yeah. So, you know, the movement we're talking about is my project, which is the Child Care Voter Project. And really, you know, this, uh, the genesis of this actually started, I would say, pre-pandemic, where early childhood, especially if we talk about child care, pre-K, home visiting, they were already in crisis. They were already operating at razor thin margins. They were already having troubles with state funding, especially for kids that receive subsidies to help pay for the cost and all these um, different things. But then the pandemic just exacerbated and really kind of tore open the cracks that were already existing and showed all of us, even if we weren't in the early childhood sector, that number one, uh, childcare, pre-K are vital pieces of life and they're vital pieces to keep the economy going as well, right? People can't go to work and people struggled to work at home without access to quality childcare and pre-K. So, you know, that was kind of the crisis moment. And I would say we're still in a crisis moment that bore out this childcare voter movement, because we saw that a lot of people um, that we would interact with, you know, in our other advocacy work really had a desire to get active and get involved and really kind of flex that civic engagement muscle Um, when it came to these issues. But a lot of folks would come to us, come to me and say, you know, when politicians say education, they're just talking about K through 12, right? Or they're just talking about higher ed, right? And and no one really is talking about me, the the owner of this childcare facility in rural Delaware County or up in the Northeast, right? And and that was really that energy is kind of what spawned the movement for childcare voters is to kind of get everybody together that either are in the industry, they have kids that went through these vital pieces of early childhood, or they know just the importance of it and bring them all together and say, hey, if we create enough noise, which that's kind of what we're doing right now, if we create enough noise with the folks that are going to Harrisburg in the fall, we're already in Harrisburg, we will truly see um, significant shifts in what the funding looks like, what the everyday experience for folks looks like on the ground with early childhood because, um, and I know we spoke about this a little bit, Ari, in our previous discussion, but, you know, for a lot of these areas in Pennsylvania, um, especially rural areas, even if one childcare facility closes, which might seem like a drop in the bucket, oh, one, one place closed, like how big can that be? Sometimes when we're talking about rural counties, they might only have 10, 12, 15 total childcare facilities. So, when one closes, a community feels that through and through. And, you know, ever since the pandemic started, I think we're just over 1500 childcare facilities have closed. Now we are, you know, seeing some reopen as we kind of open back up more broadly speaking, but still those losses are incalculable when you think about, you know, the education that was lost, the economic engine power that was lost because people couldn't go back to work because their facility closed. So really, this movement is trying to change the narrative about what can be done when it comes to early childhood education. But I just want to take a moment. I'll just be open with listeners. I have a two and a half year old that just started preschool. So my my ears are really perking up throughout this conversation, gentlemen. 
And our preschool is only about seven minute drive away. But did I hear correctly, 1,500 across Pennsylvania childcare facilities have, have closed in recent years? Is that what I just heard? Yeah, I believe the data shows us that from, I think we started keeping track in March of 2020. And since then, we're a little above 1,500 places that have shuttered. And that is considered kind of a more permanent shuttering, not like we closed for an X amount of time. And when we're talking about this movement, uh, your coalition, and then some of these stakeholders that have unfortunately closed, we're talking about for-profit, non-profit, faith-based, the whole, the whole gamut of childcare in, in America nowadays. Yeah. I mean, and Dan's been in this game a little bit longer in Pennsylvania than I have, but um, it's really touching all sectors. You know, some of the bigger corporations um, can withstand some of the, you know, adjustments that had to be made during COVID. But especially when we think about, you know, individual providers that might be providing childcare right out of their home, places like that, or places that um, only have one or two facilities. And this is where it, it gets the most acute is because of how the funding is structured to, you know, provide support for folks that need um, childcare subsidies in order to access these facilities. They provide such razor thin margins for these providers that to offer those services for the kids that especially need it means that they're going to take a hit on the business side. And for so long, you know, these providers have been doing it, kind of keeping the whole industry going based on goodwill alone. But now we're at a point coming out of COVID where goodwill can't pay the bills. So that's kind of what we're really facing right now here in Pennsylvania. But Dan, I don't know if you want to add a little bit more because you were here kind of before I started in this work as well. Yeah, so so Kyle made all the great points in the sense of the numbers, and and so the, that fifteen hundred is about a total of seven thousand childcare centers across of about seven thousand childcare centers across the state that are licensed. So even if it's a you know family based provider at home or a corporate center or just a mom and pop you know mom pop shop uh, that has one center, it's these are licensed. They have to follow regulations. A lot of times, very strict regulations, obviously because uh, you know our kids are involved. So a lot of what has taken place over the past few years was an issue that began before the pandemic. And what we notice is that it has only just made it worse. And one of those main issues is affordability. So parents really not being able to afford high quality childcare or having access to those centers. And then really what has you know, caused an exodus of childcare and early learning teachers is pay. There are a lot of reasons why people, you know, remember childcare centers were open throughout the pandemic. You know, many of them closed for a day and started back up on Monday, you know, in, in March of 2020, but they lost a lot of teachers and it was difficult to hire teachers before the pandemic. And now it's even more difficult because let's just say you're, you have a master's degree or a bachelor's and you're a, you're a teacher of three or four-year-olds, you're probably only making about $14 an hour in many parts of the state, including the Southeast, which obviously cost of living is much higher. And you can now go to Target and make $20 an hour with benefits. So we did a survey in March of 2020, uh, 2022, earlier this year, and about 91% of centers who, who responded to the survey were short on staff, 91%. And what that caused was just for those that were surveyed, about 32,000 kids that could not go to these early learning centers because the schools didn't have enough teachers to fill the classrooms. So that's 32,000 kids across Pennsylvania that didn't have access to early learning. You know, one of the most crucial years of their life. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So Ari, I, you know, I, I uh, empathize with you. 
And not only that, that's, you know, what, 15,000 parents who have to figure out how they can then go to work. And what ended up happening is a lot of those parents didn't go back to work. So when, you know, folks were talking about people being lazy and sitting at home doing nothing during the pandemic, really what the reality was, they wanted to get back to work. They couldn't find places for their kids to go to, to childcare. So those are really some of the serious issues that we've seen face you know, working parents and, and the centers around the state. I should have mentioned this at the beginning. I think that one of your colleagues and one of your board members uh, for our Harrisburg insiders, of which there are many who listen to this show, uh, would recognize those names. And when we talk about licensing and uh, what you mean by quality centers, uh, these women were in the trenches of that in, in past years. Uh, so maybe you can speak to uh, to them and, and then we'll plunge into these candidate conversations uh, as we close out uh, the final few weeks of this campaign. The board of, of Children First is really an onslaught of who has been involved in in helping kids for the past four, you know, few decades in Pennsylvania. And you know, we really have a lot of leaders that are on our board that we that really give us a lot of guidance on like Harry Dichter and other folks. And you know, our executive director, Donna Cooper, has been around for a very long time in Pennsylvania. And there are just a few of the examples of people who we wouldn't be at this stage in early early childhood or really K through 12 and a lot of the other work. If it wasn't for folks like them who have, you know, either on our board or have worked on our staff, and it has taken decades to get to this point. I mean, really, childcare was not talked about uh, or early learning until the last couple of years. Now it's a national issue. You know, the United States Chamber of Commerce. It's one of their leading issues. They're a leader on advocating for this. So it's not just this, you know, crazy progressive idea. It's really been morphed into uh, a bipartisan, you know, really conservative and liberal kind of, you know, partnership. That recognizes that it really is the foundation of our economy and it's the foundation of our educational system. And in order to really prepare our kids for the future, we have to start at the beginning and make sure that working families are getting that support so that small businesses within our towns like Bristol that I live in uh, are able to function and hire working parents and that they're not stressed out of their minds, you know, trying to pay $20,000 a year just for uh, their kid to go to childcare. So Really, we're, we're lucky to have a lot of leaders that have been around for a long time and, and it helps, you know, folks like Kyle and I really learn and, and recognize, you know, the challenges that they have faced and gotten through so that all of us can kind of work together to propel the movement even further. Well, I certainly have followed the evolution of the thinking of the U.S. Chamber and their enthusiasm for this. And that is in large part to uh, uh, Harriet Victor and Donna Cooper. I'm just curious, is the Pennsylvania Chamber or the regional chambers, uh, I mean, have they embraced this as a advocacy issue when they do their annual days in Harrisburg? We worked alongside the, the state chamber on a survey that came down to focusing on non-traditional uh, hour childcare. And we wrote a report along with our Start Strong PA partners to kind of look at, you know, what, you know, there's a strong need throughout the typical nine to five workday that, you know, as we all know, does not exist anymore for many people. But then the non-traditional hours like tourism, hospitality, you know, how does that get impacted by the shortage of childcare and what are business leaders hearing? Uh, and it's obvious that they are. You know, the data is pretty clear that it's a huge need. So the state chamber has been a partner on this, and um, the local chambers were members of many of the local chambers. Uh, we have given presentations to them. I was at a. It's interesting. I was at a lower Bucks County Chamber of Commerce at a state of the state the other day with local state legislators. Republicans and Democrats are talking about the issue. And then went to the Delaware County Chamber of Commerce where Senator Bob Casey was there. And there was three questions they asked him. And access to childcare was one of those three questions. Five years ago, that wasn't going to happen. So it has really been a lot of strides. And I think 
that we have some good partners in the business community to really push this over the line and really make Pennsylvania a leader in this issue. Well, that's great. And I, I was going to actually save that for my last question, but we'll do that before we get into these candidate conversations and uh, the plans for engaging with these elected officials and future elected officials. But where, where does Pennsylvania rank nationally and uh, regionally on these issues? Well, if you're just talking early childhood, it's, you know, there's been a lot of progress made. But to give you an example, New York has universal pre-K. They invested about $2 billion or $3 billion, I might even be wrong, maybe $3 billion this year in access to childcare. So we made a lot of strides in Pennsylvania, but we're still just talking about, you know, we, we got about 60 million for pre-K counts program, which is basically the public funded pre-K system in Pennsylvania. About two thirds of the kids that would be eligible for the pre-K counts program. So for three and four year olds in Pennsylvania still don't have access to that program. So even though they fall into the, the criteria who would qualify, they don't have a program to go to. So yes, we made progress. We are really seeing a lot of ideas come out and really the, our, our partnerships have grown. But when you're talking about our neighbors, we are very far behind of where we should be when it comes to, you know, to access and affordability. But again, there's strides come in time and uh, we feel like we have good partners to really push us forward on both sides of the aisle. Well, speaking of both sides of the aisle, you have uh, across multiple counties, these what you're calling candidate conversations. My understanding is that for all purposes, these are debates, but it sounds much more collegial that we're going to have a nice conversation. So maybe you can preview for listeners a little about that, Kyle. I'm excited to uh, uh, to learn more because yeah. it is exciting. Look, I mean, when we look at the final few weeks of a campaign, the most valuable resource is the candidate's time. And that's a great testament to your work and the importance of these issues that candidates are going to give the time to have meaningful conversations with voters about these issues. Yeah, we, we started organizing these candidate conversations to serve two purposes, right? Like on the one hand, we want to make sure that these folks that are going to Harrisburg know that there are a lot of things to learn about early learning uh, and pre-K and child care, but also a lot of voters that care about these issues. And then for the voters, this kind of came out a little bit in our discussion about the child care voter project. But you know, a lot of folks come to me, especially once they're, you know, they joined our Facebook group, they're, you know, on our email list, what have you. And they say, you know, what does Canada X in my area think about pre-K? You know, and, and I think a lot of people have a, a hunger for knowing exactly where candidates stand on these issues. So that's why we hold these candidate conversations. For this election cycle, you've previewed in um, previous episodes of your show, we have, we've had redistricting, a lot of districts have changed. We have a lot of retirements that led to open seats. So we use that as kind of our criteria to guide where we hold these conversations um, throughout the state to say, well, if it's somebody new, we want to make sure that we know where they stand. And then for races that are going to be maybe a lot more competitive because of redistricting, we want folks to know, you know, this is going to be one of the issues you should think about when you go into the voting booth. So we're holding these candidate conversations. We get candidates together and ask them the same um, set of nine questions that all pertain to issues affecting children. And obviously we touch on the stuff we've been talking about, childcare, pre-K, but we also dive into children's mental health. We dive into broadband access since that became such an issue, especially in rural Pennsylvania during the pandemic, both for schooling and just for life in general. 
But we, we want to make sure that all these issues that are touching the lives of kids in Pennsylvania are addressed by these candidates that are going to be stepping into the office, especially because we know that we're coming off of a budget cycle that had a lot of good investments for kids, but not quite, ex you know, we're not quite to where we want to be in terms of what is needed. So these conversations are being held in those areas that will have the open seat and competitive races. And if you're at home and you're thinking, wait, but I still want to know where my candidate stands on these issues. Um, we also sent out a candidate survey to all candidates that are running for state rep and state Senate offices. And we will have that up on our website, childrenfirstactionfund.org. So you can see exactly where your candidate stands on these important issues, even if they're not participating in one of our conversations. So these conversations, just so listeners understand correctly, it's with state house and state senate candidates, either incumbents or for first time candidates. And if listeners are in any one of these counties, and we'll go through the counties in a moment, it's come one, come all, or you need to register in advance, or you need to be members of your organization. It's come one, come all. We do have registration links. Um, you can find them on our website, on our events page, where you can register to come either in person. We'd love to have you in person, but we are going to stream all of these on Zoom as well. So if you're thinking, I'd love to come, but it's running right up against work schedule, but I want to tune in, you can always tune in via Zoom. And that you will have to register for beforehand to get the Zoom link. And my understanding is most of these are in the evening, if not all of them are in the evening. And it's but <laughs> I'm chuckling as I say, it's, it's, it's family friendly. Folks can bring their kids. Uh... Absolutely. Yep. The, the more the merrier. And I think, you know, people have definitely asked me that before, like, hey, can I, can I bring my kids to, to this conversation? And I think, I think if anything, things like that, like bringing your whole family, bringing, you know, the people that are affected by these issues are going to be the most effective things when getting in front of these candidates and talking about these issues. And, and Kyle has, you know, he said he will single-handedly watch every child below the age of five to make sure that parents can, you know, pay attention. He has volunteers, so it's really great work that Kyle's doing, not only organizing, but watching all the kids during these candidate conversations. Right, Kyle? Yeah, Dan, Dan always loves to add that part. Yep. <laughs> well, Kyle, thanks very much. You need a um, baby's bottle full of something uh, if you're going to do that at the end of all these. So, and, all right. So uh, I, I think listeners might be familiar with some of the most competitive uh, state house and state Senate races, but give folks a preview of, of which districts uh, this is going to happen in uh, over the course of the month ahead. Yeah. So we're going to start out, we start out in Chester County. So we have a bunch of competitive races in Chester County. So we tried to bring a lot of races together uh, on one night. We have three different conversations happening in Bucks County. We kind of split those up, Upper Bucks, Central Bucks, Lower Bucks. Um, we have a Lehigh Valley candidate conversation, two in Montgomery County, one in Delaware County, and when we get sort of out of the Southeast, we are going to have conversations also in particular races in Center County. We kind of have these, we call them one-offs, where we're just kind of having one race um, in one conversation. But we have one of those in Center County, one of those in Luzerne County. We have our Greater Northeast candidate conversation where we're bringing in a lot of candidates from Monroe, Pike, Lackawanna counties. And then we finish it off in Allegheny County on the other side of the state. Um, in October. And I, I think it's just important as we wind down, this is a bipartisan issue. Uh, you have champions in the legislature on, on both sides of the aisle is my understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of mentioned up top, I've, I've worked in other issue-based campaigns. Out of all the issues I've ever worked on, early learning has by far the most bipartisan support. 
And for me, that's encouraging because not a lot of things give bipartisan support these days, but it's also frustrating at the same time because we have all this bipartisan support, but we're still experiencing a lot of the same problems that plague the system the whole time. So really what we're trying to do with these conversations, with the surveys, with the child care voter project is to really kind of push over the finish line, you know, all this bipartisan momentum to get these problems solved in Harrisburg and actually kind of deliver for families um, throughout the whole state of Pennsylvania. Well, the two of you have been super generous with your time. Dan, I'm going to let you have the last word. And I'm going to ask a question I, I've never asked uh, in, in doing dozens of these shows. We have thousands of listeners from all over, so I think they'd be curious. I'm certainly curious. In Lower Bucks County, when there isn't child care, meaning on a Saturday or Sunday, what is the best activity for your toddlers? In Lower Bucks County. Well, now I heard you correctly, you live in Bristol. Yes, so. yeah. So in... So nowadays we tend to, we can go to breweries, but that sounds like <laughs> I shouldn't be saying that all the time on podcasts. But um, no, I think there, there's a lot of great things. You know, we have the river down here in Bristol. We have great parks that are down here in Bristol. We really do have, Bucks County is a great place to come visit. It's one of the best tourism places in Pennsylvania. So I'm always going with the wineries and the breweries, but then also you can go to Tyler State Park. You can walk along the, yeah, the river and we're about to have some great fall festivals coming up. I feel like there's about 65 of them. So we'll be making our rounds around there, getting a little bit too much of a pumpkin this and pumpkin that. I mean, come on down. All right. Well, hey, you can combine and get pumpkin brews at some of these Pennsylvania microbreweries. Um, Gentlemen, I really thank you for for the time and what you're doing in the trenches. Thank you for your time. It's an important issue. And and we hope that both sides of the aisle can continue fighting for what working families in Pennsylvania really need. So we, we appreciate you taking the time to have us. You're here. Thank you, Ari. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Take a minute and leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform. Please also consider following us on social media for updates and announcements regarding future episodes and new guests. You're political, so I am sure that you're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. We are too at PA Political Podcast. Visit our website, papoliticalpodcast.org, and send us your feedback about this episode and suggestions on future guests. Until next week. Thank you.